post-Soviet energy pact, the changing dynamics of fossil fuels and political support, episode 12. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Professor Margarita Balmaceda. She is a professor of diplomacy and international relations at Seton Hall University. She is also an associate at Harvard University's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. Her books include The Politics of Energy Dependency, published in 2013, and her other book published in 2014, Living the High Life in Minsk. In this episode, we get a preview of her latest book that will come out in March 2021, Russian Energy Chains, the remaking of techno-politics from Siberia to Ukraine to the European Union. Because of Margarita's extensive experience, research, and writing about Russia, the EU, Belarus, and Ukraine, we delve into the latest issues of these countries, including Lukashenko's attempt to hang on to power after the September 2020 disputed national elections. We get a background on how and why Lukashenko was able to stay in power. We discuss the overreach of Russia and its historical relations with Austria and Germany. Nonetheless, Margarita outlines the historical relationship between EU countries and Russia, including highlighting the aggressive actions of Russia, which underappreciated the response by the EU. For me, the quote that summarizes best our discussion and the key takeaway is when Margarita states, energy policies can never be imposed only from above. For the energy services we depend on in order to lead a good life, these are part of our expectations of the system in which we live. End of quote. This describes well both what happens when people feel secure in the political systems and how they feel when they don't feel secure. Energy is an essential part of household and business budgets. Governments can make money or they can lose money in both providing energy services to its people and also, in this case, by selling fossil fuels. The energy system needs to be viewed both as a direct provider of, of benefits for households, but also an income generator for the state budget or other interests, which can either directly or indirectly benefit or harm citizens. There is a tremendous amount of political capital invested into energy and the relations that keep the system together and affordable. When energy becomes more expensive or the flows of money shift, the people can also shift their political allegiance. The social compact may be broken, which leads people to change their support for politicians. Thus, the idea of a social contract, which we discuss, plays an essential part in understanding the interplay of politics and energy. And now for this episode with Professor Margarita Balmaceda on the shifting post-Soviet social energy packs. Okay, uh, Margarita uh, Balmaceda, thank you for joining us on the My Energy 2050 podcast. You're welcome. Great. Glad to be here. No, I'm really excited that you're here. Um, I, I start off the show usually with a, a simple question, and this one is, how did you become interested in energy? Um. I think it happened almost by chance. I had finished my PhD uh, in political science on a, another topic related to the former Soviet Union. Actually, I was a sociological analysis of uh, Latin American specialists in the Soviet Union. And um, after that, I sought, um, looked very hard for a postdoc, which was very, very hard to get for many reasons, which I can tell you later. I ended up getting a postdoc to learn about Ukraine at the Ukrainian Research Institute in Harvard. And once I was there, <laughs> I 
obviously the no <clears throat> the number one, number two, number three, number four topic in anything dealing with Ukraine and relations with Russia was energy. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into it. I never expected it would happen, uh, but I let it happen, and uh, here I am. And is that when you, because you're fluent in Russian and Ukrainian and other languages? Yes, Hungarian. I learned Ukrainian. I learned Ukrainian at Harvard and in Ukraine. Okay. Mainly in Ukraine. I didn't. I didn't speak Ukrainian before. Okay. Okay. So yeah, and you know Hungarian. I just yes, <laughs> yes, and actually there's a Hungarian connection, but I will reveal that later. Okay, okay, okay. Very important Hungarian connection uh, that actually was the reason I went to Harvard to do that postdoc, but let's let's leave that for the future. Okay, okay, we'll save that for the future. We all have our secret Hungarian connections, actually. So Yeah, exactly. The... <laughs> to be Good. revealed. Yes. Um, you have a new book coming out in March, um, and maybe we can hit on a few things. I actually had uh, questions developed based on your previous research, but but I see, uh, at least in the new book, maybe you could tell the title and the, the focus of it. Sure. So um, I have to remember what the title is because they changed the title. The, the, the publisher... Uh, is it called Russian Energy Chains? Is that the yes, new one? Yes, Russian Energy Chains. The remaking of techno-politics from Siberia to Ukraine to the yes, European Yes, from Siberia Union. to Ukraine to the European Union. Actually, the original name was going to be Chains of Value, Chains of Power, which I really like, but as it always happens, the publisher may have yes. other, uh, other, other views. So actually, this book is a response to my dissatisfaction to a certain extent with my other books. Okay. <laughs> Um, because in, in the other books, I, I have written three books, three other books on energy in the region. And I always found the discussion of energy dependency a little bit problematic. So for many years, the the key narrative that you would find in the press or even in academia would be about quote-unquote bad Russia oppressing energy-dependent states. And I knew that was wrong, and actually two of my books show that because in, I have a book about energy corruption in Ukraine that shows how corruption, energy corruption in Ukraine made it impossible for Ukraine to have a, an energy policy including an energy policy vis-a-vis -vis whatever Russia may have wanted to do. Uh, in, in, in another book, <clears throat> The Politics of Energy Dependency, I, I show how domestic politics affects the way different states deal with the threat or the presence of Russia's and energy power. Uh, so I knew that that, that um, narrative was wrong, even if we accept that Russia or Russian actors have used energy for political purposes, that narrative was too simplistic. Mm -hmm. So already in, in, in those books, I was dealing with that, but what I had not really worked with was on how the technical side of bringing this energy to final consumers actually affected the equation. So Basically, what I, what I came to understand is that we could not talk about the threat of energy dependency on Russia 
without talking about the profits that could be related to energy dependence on Russia, the temptation of energy dependence on Russia. And of course, a lot of this has to do with corruption. And certainly, uh, I know that part of that allure of that dependency was through the corrupt uh, gains that important actors could make. I wrote an entire book about energy corruption in Ukraine. But what changed uh, is that about five or six years ago, I started to understand that you could only, that, that this was not only about corruption. This was about how actually participation in the value chains of Russian exports, including all the technical side, benefited a lot of actors, not simply bad, corrupt actors, but a lot of actors. Um, I understood that really to understand this play between energy threat and dependency as an energy threat and as an opportunity, you needed to really look at that entire chain. Um, that's one thing. And then as you start to look at that entire chain, you start to see that different energy types have different particularities, which actually affect what you can do with it. And that's how I embarked on, on, this, um, on this book, um, Russian Energy Chains. And it's been quite a ride because it was so tremendously hard to learn about these three energy types, to understand each um, technical step between extraction and, and sale to um, end users. Um, it, it, it's been the most challenging book I've written, and I'm glad that, I, that it's coming to an end. Yes. Um, and I'm very happy that it is, and I'm, I'm very happy that I could understand a little bit how the not only the political side of the question, but also the economic and also the technical side affects what you can do. Yes. With it. Maybe so, we could, we, we could, you could just talk about uh, the technology. Why, why is the technology important? Well, the technology is important because even if you take something as simple as transportation, if you have an energy good um, like natural gas, that needs to be kept under a certain pressure that is very high. That very fact, which is, has everything to do with its molecular structure, that is going to change the whole thing because that's going to change, obviously, how you can transport it. It's going to change how expensive it's going to be to transport it, um, how you can bring other actors into the building of those pipelines. You know, we talk about European actors in Nord Stream 2. The same story was going on already in the 1970s when the Soviet Union started to export natural gas. So it creates a lot of technical requirements that are going to be coming down the line. I don't know if you're familiar with Per Hoxellius' book, Red Gas. Yes, yes, I am. Uh -huh, uh -huh. There he has a fantastic discussion about how steelmakers in Austria really played a very important role in that whole equation because not only because they needed uh, the gas imports to go through Austria to compensate for something else, but because the Soviets needed that particular steel. So one technical difference like that affects everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. Like uh, in Hungary, the example would be Mol, the oil and gas company helped uh, build the Druzhba pipeline. Yes. Uh, and even through the 1990s, Hungary got lower price gas just because 
they were getting paid back for that service that they did. Yes, absolutely. The uh, there's the name of those accords is the Surgut. Is it the Surgut agreements or something like this? Uh, it sounds yeah. possible. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, mm. So um, it's it's been fascinating for me to learn about all of this and. Um, I also had to learn, obviously, all the lexicography in the different languages. So oh, yes. I love a challenge, and uh, this was a big one. Yeah, you um, did it in Russian, Ukrainian, in all the yes. different languages. Yes. German? You, you have uh, a chapter yes. in German? Yeah, yes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. yes. So, so uh, and it's also interesting because even those linguistic differences or this, um, the lexicographical differences or the words uh, different countries use, are very much related to the cultural history. So, for example, the way certain technologies are called in Ukrainian have a lot to do with what was going on at the time those technologies were introduced in Ukraine. Uh, I have a whole chapter about coal, yes. but actually it's about coking coal. Mm -hmm. So that really took me back to the end of the 19th century, you know, a little bit like your book uh, has a lot of things from 1907. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so I had to kind of, you know, uh, understand what was happening in Ukraine at that time, Tsarist period, beginning of industrialization, and that also affected the whole uh, lexicography they use for steel production, coking coal, etc., etc. So in any case, um, it's not the most efficient way to write a book. <laughs> no, but because you, you got into industrial policy. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. Or you get, so, get into it. Uh -huh. um, so I find that uh, very interesting. And, and in a sense, it ties in with some of the issues we were discussing just before we started recording the podcast. Because, for example, if you look at the case of coal, uh, in part because of the technologies that are related to coal production in general, in part because of the technologies that were used in the Soviet Union, that sector in a country like Ukraine became a sector that was basically too big to touch. Too big to touch to engage in a real reform of the sector. Because they made so much money from it? Because too so many people were employed in it. Oh, okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So actually, uh, officially... Most uh, or a significant amount of mines in Ukraine have been loss making. Uh -huh. Not now necessarily because now a lot of things have changed, but uh, in the 1990s. Um, in many cases, the caloric value of the coal that was extracted was smaller than the caloric value of extracting it. <laughs> but the, the sheer weight of having you know, two million people associated with the sector, one million people associated with the sector made it too big. And what is really exciting is that a certain type of actors recognized this and created a kind of unholy alliance between those workers and their own rent-seeking goals. So in that sense, you know, this is about culture, but in a, part in a, in a somewhat different, different... Yes, yes. And this would be the Donbass region... That's now yes. being, has been, well, it's disputed. <laughs> or I, I, I don't know what the proper way to label Donbass region. It's occupied, but it's held by separatists. Uh, yeah, the yeah. so-called uh, Donetsk. 
Popular Republic and so-called Luhansk Popular Republic. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we, I actually have an interview with two journalists uh, on the Energy Innovation Podcast. It's at CU. I, what, I'm just switching around on podcasts. But, but they looked at this, the, the two Polish uh, reporters, and they really follow this, what's happening with the coking coal, uh, the ath- was anthracite, um, something yeah. like this, uh, and how, how that goes through Russia and then is exported uh, as well. So. Yeah, which is which is interesting because um, this idea of the real chains and the imagined chains is also very interesting. So, for example, so in in this book, in the book that is coming out in March, I actually follow real chains, and all my chains are verified, which was also very hard. Yeah, but, really um, hard. But we also know that historically, the imagined chains have been nearly as important. So, for example, look at what your Polish reporters are talking about. Basically, they are probably talking about the fact that starting in 2017, Ukraine was supposedly buying coal from South Africa to compensate for the coal it could not buy from those occupied territories. Oh. But everybody says that actually it was. So some people are saying, well, you know, it's crazy to buy it from South Africa. It's so far, too far away. But Actually, many people say that that was actually just a lie, that it was actually that same coal from the occupied territories that was um, sold as if imported from South Africa, but actually was just brought in from those territories to Russia, then back to Kiev-controlled Ukraine. So somebody would make money. Well, yes, but also to circumvent Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. Okay. Oh. Yes. And so that's one interesting imaginary chain. Another really interesting imaginary imaginary chain ha- uh, has to do with Ukraine in 1910. Sorry, sorry, 2010. So if you remember, there were that was 2009. That huge uh, gas cutoff from yes in January. So there is a new. Um, okay. Sorry. I, I messed things up. 2006. Uh, there is another cutoff. There is a new agreement. And the idea is that now Ukraine is going to import not simply gas from Russia and Turkmenistan, which it had been doing previously, but it's going to also, there's going to be a price for a cocktail of natural gas from Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. Oh, yeah, right. This is how they got the lower price or something. But actually, this was also a lie. So uh, it was probably the same gas, but being packaged this way allowed for certain price manipulations to be made or not made. So um, chains can be real and they can also be imagined or or purposely lied about mm-hmm. and, and how does that impact the i would say the, the policy at the end so why why do they have to repackage it whether it's just uh as a story or it's physically repackaged why, why do they have to do that well in the case of ukraine in 2006 they did that actually as a justification for a higher price saying that now at least Ukraine will have a larger oh. degree of, of diversification. 
Okay, okay. Trying to sell it as this is safer or or more secure. It's a energy security yes. aspect, yes. so we pay more for it. Yes. Um, in the case of coal, supposedly from South Africa, this is a way to avoid the accusation of betraying Ukraine by purchasing their coal, coal from back. the occupied territories or from the uh, illegally seceded territories. Yes, yes. Um, and I, I want to then maybe move into uh, uh, EU-Russian relations, which I think maybe you hit on. But but this, this I mean, so there's, there's a dependency here, I would say both economic and just maybe historical, geopolitical, relation-wise of... And, I know the EU <laughs> EU is representative of many countries, right? And in one zone. But but how because now we, we gotta start transitioning towards a like a low carbon future for sure. So how how does this start to change the relationship? Especially if your book is based on molecules and and the physical property of hydrocarbons. Um how does how how do you or how how do you develop or do you look at the, how the relationship with the EU is changing or, or European countries? Well, it's we have not seen much of this change in terms of the change of a decarbonized energy system yet. But obviously, if there is a real move to that kind of decarbonized energy system, this would mean a tremendous change in the relationship with Russia. Um, because basically Russia has, until now, put all its eggs in the basket of fossil fuels. Now, some of my colleagues, such as Felipe Katinkinen, have been talking about Russia as a possible green superpower. Um, but is Russia actively developing this? I do not think so. Um, and there is a clear trend, in my view, if the European Union states actually move clearly away from the internal combustion energy, internal combustion um, engine. Um, a real move to a decarbonized energy system would totally change the system of relations with Russia, which makes me wonder why is there such a huge still lobby for Nord Stream 2? Is it about the energy needs of the European Union? Is it about the companies that are involved in the project? Uh, because once you have that, that creates a sunk cost that is going to be there for a long time. So I haven't found an answer. I haven't found an answer. Um, I haven't found an answer for this yet. And, and I don't know whether, um, and I don't know whether this, um, um, whether somebody has a, an answer to this, but clearly it would be a gigantic change. But your book almost lays the foundation for this in, in that it looks at these ties and, and this industrial tie, the political ties, who benefits from this. And it establishes, at least in my mind, and not reading it, but just talking to you about it, but it, but it establishes this, this network of who's involved in it, who benefits from it, how does it work, and then, then we can kind of see, well, a green transition probably doesn't involve Russia, uh, even if we could, but, it, but it's dramatically different relationships and different companies involved. 
I think that's a very uh, generous comment on your on your part. I think I need to think more about this. Um, how, because should, I mean, are we talking about a situation where energy flows from Russia would cease? Are we talking about a situation where energy flows from Russia would redirect to those states within the EU that, or outside the EU that would not really engage in a, in a real decarbonization policy? Or are we talking about Russia creating a kind of a dual policy towards fossil fuel and non-fossil fuels? Um, that is still unclear to me. I do not see very clear um, policy in Russia to diversify away from fossil fuels. Um, but maybe there is more than, than I know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move on to, to the, the social contracts uh, that you, you, you have in your previous book. And then also I just read uh, just the little summaries of, of your chapters. You bring in social contract as well. Why, what's the value and why, why are you interested in social contracts? Energy policies can never be imposed only from above. Energy use, especially energy services we depend for in order to live a good life, are part of our expectations of the system in which we live in, and even more so in the case of post-Soviet states, which, because of the way the Soviet or socialist system worked, um, presented this as, as a key part of what the system could offer its inhabitants. And this is one reason. But the other reason is that in, in countries like Belarus, which uh, I... Um, where this um, concept really gains a lot of prominence. The idea of a social contract is really essential for understanding how very deeply authoritarian regimes, such as Mr. Lukashenko's, could stay in power. And if you look at the case of Belarus, you, and again, I, I'm going to for now be talking about Belarus before September 2020. We can move to after September or something strange, if you look at the way Lukashenko remained in power, he was in many ways following on the steps of one of Belarus's most successful Soviet period leaders, um, uh, Masherov, Mr. Masherov. And basically what Mr. Masherov offered Belarusians in the late 1960s and 70s was a social contract where they would see their standards of living increase significantly, even more significantly than other Soviet republics in exchange for loyalty to the system. And Lukashenko did this very well. And he was able to do this. And, and if you look at Belarus, you know, from 1994 on, which is when he became president, you can actually see that living standards increased uh, very clearly, very gradually, but clearly throughout his years in power. So um, part of the reason I, I think the social contract narrative is important, so one is the energy element. The second is because it's a counter narrative to the official narrative of repression in a place like Belarus. Until now, 
until August, September 2020, Mr. Lukashenko did not stay in power because of outright repression. He stayed in power because of fear of something that could derail your life or your well-being, kind of very kind of low-level fear of repression. But also he stayed in power because he could offer the population a social contract, including improved standards of living. And of course, in the case of Belarus, these two elements, the authoritarian element and the energy element come together because energy was key for that Belarusian social contract. Part of it had to do with the way Lukashenko managed the relationship with Russia, the way he used adulation, blackmail, threats, and sheer cunningness to extract certain deals from Russia. But it also has had to do with the way he dealt with energy policy within Belarus. So, for example, the lowest residential prices were not in Belarus. They were in Ukraine. Lukashenko was smart enough not to have such low prices so as to not to destroy and decapitalize the system internally. So there are many elements in this, and in the case of Belarus in particular, these two elements come together. But now what has been happening since 2015 is that in part because of the decrease in oil prices, one of the main sources of income for Belarus has decreased tremendously. And that, that main source of income was not quote-unquote subsidized oil. It was the possibility of refining that oil and exporting it. And because of the decline in world oil prices, that margin just cannot be as, as high. So that is one reason why he cannot offer that kind of social contract uh, now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this is one of the things that, that keeps uh, changing. And I mean, more broadly than the pandemic could shake out some of these authoritarian leaders just because they can't guarantee this economic growth that they could in the past. Yes, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So you have several things. Um, they are coming together. Is, is it fair to, to compare, and this is a real question, I don't know, uh, Belarus and Ukraine as two countries that have gone different ways or have have had had different developments since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But what do you mean? Is it fair to compare? Well, well, I mean, if, if I think about the Ukrainian energy system, so it's characterized by a lot of corruption. And I don't know so much about Belarus, but but you mentioned that uh, Lukashenko, is he, he was able to play a very smart game against Russia, basically. Yes. Where Ukraine has just turned into a complete basket case. Uh, and I mean, things are, are changing uh, now, but but how how these countries have developed uh, since the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union? Can can we compare them and see? Well, Belarus could have gone the track of Ukraine and been taken over by mafia and or shady characters, we'll say, in the energy sector. But it seems like he's kept quite a tight control over the energy sector. Well, let me say that. Um um, the first time I arrived in Belarus, it was as a Fulbright lecturer in 1997, September, whatever, September 5 or 10 or 23, 1997. And the first person who came to visit me told me something I already knew, but he told me, 
Um, basically, the difference between Ukraine and Belarus is that in Ukraine, in Belarus, there is only one, in Russian, Vod of Zakonia, like only one mafioso. And in Ukraine, there's too many. And <laughs> basically, um, that has to do with the size of the economy. It has to do with the way resources were controlled also during the Soviet period. And this is one of the reasons why Lukashenko was allowed to concentrate so much power on him. Um, so it's, it's not really comparable in that sense, because in Ukraine, you have always had a much more diversified economy, the possibility for much stronger groups to compete against each other openly. Now, those economic interests and economic actors actually exist, still do exist in Belarus, but the kind of rules of the game, and I have one chapter uh, in my 2014 book, Belarus, I have one chapter about this. Um, the rules of the game about what they could do are very different than what had emerged in Ukraine. So they probably could not have developed the same way. Um, you have also a, a cultural element that in the case of Belarus, those individuals who were in favor of a rebirth of the Belarusian language and a national agenda, they could be shot down much more clearly and successfully by somebody like Lukashenko because those ideals did not have as much resonance in the population as in the case of Ukraine, where you always had one part of the country, you know, Western Ukraine, that had kept those ideals alive. So it's a, it's a kind of different situation. Now, um, when you ask whether it's fair to compare or not, it kind of takes me back to my political science self and to my PhD life many years ago. Uh, you know, when we try to decide which countries to compare or not compare. Yes. Uh, when I had when I wrote uh, the the, polit the politics of energy dependency, um, I spent many 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 months or even years deciding which countries to compare. Um, and, um, you know, when you have 15 post-Soviet republics, you have um, some kind of limit. I, I even was thinking of doing Slovakia as a case. I later um, decided against it. But, yeah, it's, uh, it has some methodological issues. Yeah. <laughs> this is always this discussion with my students. <laughs> how, how to compare the countries, which ones to compare with, which scale are you comparing Yes. Yeah, all, all, all these there's 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 commonalities, but there's also many many differences uh, at play. I know uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna end now, but I have one more one more uh, question: is maybe st the stabilizing influence that um, and and maybe this goes back to the book on on red red gas, if I if I if I'm thinking right, in that uh, there I think it's outlined as well that. Say the Austrians, their argument for using Russian gas was this kind of Cold War uh, exchange of hard currency being sent back to the Soviet Union, and that there was a kind of a both uh, a, a little political agenda going on there, and even more more recently by Europe buying in a very broad manner, Europe buying Russian gas, so to say, or even oil. I think this would apply that that there there's a mediating influence on the actions that Russia has does but then we also i guess now have crimea we have eastern ukraine with with russia uh, going into ukraine uh what what is the role uh 
is is this relationship between the EU and Russia fairly stable or are things becoming much more unstable? Well, I think things are becoming more unstable as the underpinnings of that energy relationship are likely to change. And we have just talked about that. If there is a real change in, in EU energy policy towards decarbonization, but it's also changing because Russia has overplayed a lot of the goodwill capital that was extended to it by the European partners. And, you know, as you were about to call me with this uh, Zoom call for the, this podcast, you were competing with the, the whole discussion about the underpants of Navalny. And the, uh, so um, I think it is unstable because I think the Russian leadership has, in my view, overestimated what it is able to do outside of borders without a reaction. And I think this may create too much of a counter um, counteraction on, on the part of important players. There are many economic actors who are still very much tied to projects such as Nord Stream 2, but there is a legitimate and growing popular voice that is saying that it's enough and that may press for changes even in that area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we had change. Okay, good. Well, well, we'll have to come back maybe in a few months when your book does come out and then uh, we can follow up and see what has helped, so love happened. So love to you, well. Michael. And uh, let's continue the discussion about the different sides of culture and energy. That's, that's really interesting. Yes, yes. Well, on my book launch. So we'll have a bit more on that coming up. Thank you very much. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Professor Margarita Balmaceda. And thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you were able to learn as much as me about the background of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. We only get a snapshot of what is going on in these countries in the news. It isn't until we read books or speak to experts on these subjects that we grasp the complexities at play. This is certainly the case with Russian energy relations. I learned a lot from this interview and is one of the reasons I love doing these podcasts. If you also learned and enjoyed the podcast, please share this on your social media or better yet, just send it to someone that could find this information useful. Again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast.